Finally, the event you've all been waiting for. It is part one of a multi-part series of my intro to investing, and this is the 57th episode of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Welcome to the Retirement Planning Education Podcast, where you can learn all about IRAs and Roth IRAs, employer retirement plans, taxes, social security, Medicare, portfolio withdrawal strategies, annuities, estate planning, and much more. And now here's your host, Andy Panko. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, for, as always, for listening. It is uh, finally upon us. Today is the first of my multi-part series of Intro to Investing. I know you've been anxiously awaiting it, so hopefully I do not let you down. Uh, spoiler alert, I have not yet scoped out or specked out the rest of this beyond this first episode, but I have a loose idea of the, the topics I'll be discussing. It's going to be at least four or five parts. Today is going to be about a background of some intro things and concepts and and uh, things to be aware of and have in mind when uh, thinking about investing. And then I'll also do a quick run through of the different account types because ultimately all investments need to be held in some sort of, well, not all, but most investments, traditional financial investments need to be held in some sort of account. So uh, speaking of financial investments, this, this whole series is going to be focused on traditional, what I'll call traditional financial investments, things like stocks, bonds, mutual funds, exchange-traded funds, or ETFs. And I'll, I'll touch on those things in, in more detail in further episodes. Uh, I may also do episodes on alternate asset classes like crypto assets or using uh, cash value life insurance, not that it's an investment and should never be sold or, or pitched as an investment, but it does have investment-like uh, component to it in some cases. Real estate, whether it's rental real estate or like fix and flip real estate, those could be investments. I might even do one about uh, what to do with cash, cash alternatives, things like savings accounts, CDs, treasury bills, uh, maybe. I don't know. Actually, I may have done an episode on that already, but we'll, we'll see. It might even go so far as to do one on hedge funds and private equity funds. Not that I think um, most of you listening will, will ever uh, invest in those, but um, most of my professional experience prior to a few years ago when I started my advisory business was... Uh, doing analysis and diligence of hedge funds and private equity funds. And that's where I learned a lot of my uh, investment knowledge uh, from was, was, was dealing with some of the, the best and brightest in the investment management industry in those funds. So before really getting into anything, uh, I have to say the disclaimer, in addition to the disclaimer that already runs at the end of this podcast, uh, this whole series is not, is, not, is not investment advice. It is not tax advice, investment advice, legal advice, anything like that. It is simply education. And, and general concepts and principles to have in mind to teach you about the basics of investing. Do not construe any of this as a specific recommendation to buy or sell uh, any particular security or securities. Thank you. So a common question uh, people have about investing that, that you know, those who, who aren't uh, that well versed in investing yet is something along the lines of, I got $20,000, where should I invest it? Well, uh, not that there'll be any shortage of people with opinions on Facebook, on, uh, you know, random person in the street, family, friends, uh, even professionals. Not that there'll be a shortage of opinions for what you should do with it. But there's a lot more that goes into coming up with a right answer uh, or a reasonable, defensible answer of what you should do with that money. Uh, there's a lot more questions that need to be asked. You can't just simply say, oh, do this, do that. Um, so anyway, so be careful with that. And, and, and through this multi-part series, you'll hopefully get a better understanding and appreciation of why investing is much bigger than simply saying, I got 20,000 bucks. What do I do with it? There's a lot more that needs to be known. 
you'll probably already figure this out if you haven't already, uh, but there is a dizzying array of financial investments uh, in, in which to possibly invest between stocks, bonds, again, mutual funds, exchange traded funds. A lot of them look and feel very similar are for all intents and purposes identical. It could just be the same thing offered by a different provider. So it does make it super confusing uh, for you know for those who aren't aware of the differences or the basics of investing to try to decipher all this. Furthermore, there's not going to be a single right or best answer for how to invest or what to invest in. Different people have different opinions. Uh, they're not none of them are necessarily uh, right or wrong. I mean, some may be flat out bad advice, but generally, assuming the per the person is uh, you know well well versed in this and and is acting honestly, faithfully, and in your best interest, there can be multiple different ways to skin this investing cat. Um, so only time will tell which one ultimately ends up working out the best in terms of which one produces the most return or you know gains for you or whatever your objective may be. But um, you know, don't be confused if you ask or go to three different people to ask them how to invest your portfolio and you get three different answers. Um, each one could have its own merit for, for different reasons. And, and for this whole thing, this whole series, uh, it's going to be general investing. It won't be geared specific to retirement. Now, I know the name of this podcast is Retirement Planning Education. I will try to where um, where I think it makes sense to uh, mention some retirement specific things, what I'm talking about. But for the most part, um, this is just general investing. So th this is applicable to a much wider audience than just those that are probably the ones most likely to listen to retirement, you know, something called retirement planning education. Quick background about me, you may be wondering, um, who am I to, to be sitting here talking about investing? For those of you who don't know me, you know, you may find this helpful. So uh, since 2019, I have owned my own uh, retirement planning investment management firm. So investment management is part of what I do with the people I work with. But prior to that, from the time I graduated college in 2000 up until 2019, when I started this gig, I, I worked in institutional in various roles and what I'll call institutional capital markets and and risk management. Um, so I, my undergraduate degree was in finance from University of Delaware in 2000. I started working at a major US insurance company right out of school. I was there for four years. One of the things I did there was helping manage what's called their general account. So the way insurance, super high level, the way insurance operates is you buy, let's say life insurance policy, you pay premiums every month, every year, whatever. Uh, and and you know until you die, the, the premiums all go into a pot, you and every other policyholder, premiums all go into a big pot, called the insurance company's general account. The, there are investment managers at the insurance company who invest that general account to try to make it grow and try to have it generate income with the goal of if and when they need to pay out policyholders, like you know, a life insurance policyholder dies, they, they take the money, pay them out. And the intention is they will have hopefully earned more money on those invested premiums than what they ultimately end up paying out in aggregate across all these policyholders. That's super, super high level how, how insurance works. So it is all about uh, investing behind the scenes. Now, there's much more to it. There's what's called actuaries who basically try to come up with odds, if you will, for the likelihood of someone dying and trying to you know, price a product and value a product accordingly. But at the end of the day, insurance companies, one big investment management company, or at least has a big, huge pot of investable assets. And so I, I worked in a group that helped manage general accounts. So I saw firsthand and was around firsthand institutional investment management things they invest in, how they're invested, why they're invested, how the risk is managed around that, specifically with insurance products, you know, how and why that money is invested.
based on when the uh, assumption is for when money is going to need to be paid out of that general account pot. So, so that was one of my first uh, experiences. And then most of my career after that was uh, researching and analyzing hedge funds and private equity funds for purposes of either lending them money or, or doing certain types of complex trades with them where there was uh, what's called counterparty risk involved in those trades where we need to be comfortable with how much risk we're willing to take to this fund that we're doing this trade with. So I, I, I spent, I don't know, better part of 15 years in the weeds, um, you know, interviewing, doing diligence on and analyzing hedge funds, private equity funds, so their investment strategies, what they invest in and why, what makes the strategies tick, what's their risk management around the products they invest in, how do they manage their liquidity, you know, sources and uses of cash, um, their operational processes, their, you know, how they interact with investors, et cetera. So learned a, a tremendous amount about not just basic investment strategies, but some of the more complicated, you know, off the wall things like there's funds out there that invest in um, buying and leasing out aircrafts or buying, you know, investing in uh, bankruptcy claims. So a company goes bankrupt and creditors now are on, you know, they're, they're due money. They don't want to sit around and wait to get paid. They can sell off the right to receive that money to someone else. That's a bankruptcy claim or a trade claim. Um, so there's there's funds that invest in that. So I, I was, I, you know, I saw firsthand how all this stuff worked and it, it was tremendously valuable and helpful and insightful to me to learn much more above and beyond just stocks and bonds, which is kind of what the insurance companies uh, invest in for the most part. Uh, they invest in other things, but you know, the bulk of it was fairly vanilla, plain stuff. Uh, and additionally, I'm not currently teaching, but also an adjunct professor of finance at a, a major university. Um, most recently taught just last fall of 2020, what year are we? 2022. I've taught uh, mostly at the graduate level, but also undergraduate about investing. Uh, I've taught a fixed income, you know, basically a bond class twice. I, I, I taught an equity analysis class once. I taught... Uh, international financial management most recently. So so through, at this point, uh, what is it, 23, uh, 22, almost 23 years of learning, doing, teaching uh, about investments in capital markets and financial products, uh, I've, I've amassed a pretty pretty uh, you know solid understanding of these and, and ability to to help communicate and educate on it. So, so here we are, that, that's sort of my background. I, you know, I love learning and, and I love educating uh, on this stuff. Hence the whole point of this podcast, not just this episode, but you know, this podcast in general is, is really about, as the name implies, retirement planning education. So, all right, moving on from that, enough about me. You probably, you probably don't really care about me. You're like, shut up, monkey, just keep talking. So today's episode is going to be sort of the background and basics and some foundational concepts to, to be aware of in investing um, in no particular order. I, I want to start with the definition of investing. And this is my definition. You may find different definitions elsewhere, but they should all be loosely similar. Investing is the act of buying something with the hopes or intentions or expectations that it will do one of two things or both generate some income, you know, produce for you cash flow or income while you hold it, uh, while you own it, and or uh, go up in price such that you can eventually sell it for, for a price higher than what you bought it for. So first example of, of something that generates income, like dividends or interest. And again, I'll, I'll explain more about these in subsequent episodes when I talk about stocks and bonds, but a dividend is basically you buy a stock, some stocks pay dividends, which are, which are literally just cash payments they throw off to you typically quarterly. That can be a source of income or a bond. A bond pays what's called interest or coupon, uh, usually twice a year, sometimes once a year, sometimes quarterly. That's a source of income. So while you own the investment, it's throwing off for you some sort of income, some sort of cash flow. That's good. You know, you, you buy investments with, again, the, the nature of this multi-part series is financial investments we're talking about. 
Um, you buy them with the hope of making money. You can make money two ways from ongoing cash flow that it throws off or selling it for more than what you paid for it. So like, for example, if you buy something for $7, sell it a year later for $10, you just made $3, right? So that, that's the second way in which you can make money. So the, the quote unquote return of an investment and return is just simply what you get from it, uh, in, for lack of a better term, the return ultimately has two components. One is the cash flow it generates while you hold it. And two is the, you know, the, the hopefully the gain you have when you sell it, or it could potentially be a loss. If you sell it for less than what you bought it for, there can be a loss. But point is the return of any investment, you have to look at its total return, not just the, the income it pays and not just the gain you hopefully make. It's the combination of the two is your quote unquote total return in, uh, in holding an investment. So if you buy something without the expectation, it's going to produce income or go up in value. It's not an investment. At least, you know, some people can argue that, but for purposes of this podcast, it's not an investment. Example, basic living expenses, buying groceries so you can live, not an investment. I'm not saying you don't need to buy groceries. Uh, it, it is definitely a required, very important expense for basic sustenance and living, but it's not an investment. You, you don't go to the grocery store and buy broccoli, Cheez-Its and milk. I think that's a weird mix of things, but whatever. You, you don't buy those things hoping they'll go up in price and you can sell them for more. Um, you, you know, you buy them so you can consume them and live. Buying a depreciable asset is not an investment. And what's that? Depreciable assets, fancy speak for if something depreciates, it means it goes down in value. So this violates, you know, the uh, one of the two objectives of an investment Buy it. So it produces income and or so it goes up in value so you can sell it for more. So common example of a depreciable asset would be a car, you know, a data not I'm not talking about a classic car. Yes, there are some cars that can go up in value. You know, you, you buy a classic, you fix it up a little bit and sell it for more than than your cost. But, you know, buying a, a normal car to get to work and live life, for the most part, they drop in value as soon as you take them off the lot and continue to go down in value. Now, the last few years have been a weird anomaly with the uh, you know, pandemic and supply, uh, supply chain constraints where prices of cars shot up a lot where people could buy a car and, and sell it, you know, for, for more money than what they paid for it pretty quick. But that, that's, that's not normal. So generally speaking, you know, depreciable assets are not investments. I'm not saying you don't need them. Again, people need cars to get from point A to point B. But they're not investments, uh, not not traditional, you know, in the traditional sense of the word, and that they don't produce income and they don't uh, have an expectation of being able to be sold for for uh, more than what you paid for them. Um, uh, now, slightly a bit of a tangent, but other things can be viewed as an investment, just not a financial investment necessarily, such as improving your education, skills, or knowledge to to you know command yourself higher wages at work. So for those who are still working, especially if you're young in your career. Arguably, one of the most financially impactful and beneficial things you can do for yourself is, is uh, you know, earn more. What's called, there's something called your human capital. So capital is just a fancy term for uh, an asset or a resource you have that, that you can do something with, something of value. So financial capital would be like money you have. That's capital you can use to buy things. Human capital is the ability to use your mind and or body to, to produce income from the form of, uh, you know, doing work to get paid for, right? Wages, compensation. To the extent you could um, increase the, the amount of wages you can earn, that, could, that can mean a lot. That can add up to a lot over a multi-decade lifetime. So, you know, investing in education, skills, or knowledge that, that can increase your marketability as an employee and command you higher wages, no doubt, can be viewed as an investment, an investment in your human capital. But again, for purposes of today and this multi-part series, I'm really just focusing on traditional financial assets. So 
uh, I don't know. This is all just part of my, my view on what exactly is investing. You know, I thought it was worth mentioning, like investing in yourself. Um, right. That, that, that can make some sense. So uh, that's the definition of investing. Another thing to have uh, in mind, another sort of foundational concept of understanding investing is the concept of risk and reward. This is a phenomenon that if you want to get higher returns, all else equal, you need to accept there's going to be higher risk in getting those returns. So let, let me give you a couple, you know, let me give you an example. To, we'll step through this. Let's say I offer you two options. One is you give me $100 and I tell you I'm going to give it back to you plus 5% interest. And that 5% interest would simply mean on your 100 bucks, I'll pay you 5%, which would be $5. So you give me $100 today and in, let's say, one month, whatever, it doesn't matter. I agree to give you back your 100 plus your $5 of interest that I told you I'd give you. And assume there's no risk to this, right? Now, in theory, I can take your money, skip town and you know flee to some country. But let's assume, you know, you know, it's not going to happen. Truly risk-free. I'm, I'm guaranteeing and I'm good for it. that I will give you your money back plus five bucks. That's uh, first option. Second option is similar. You give me $100 now. In a month, I'll give you back your 100 guaranteed. And I'll also give you $5 of interest. But there's a 10% chance I may not give you any interest. Right? So you definitely get your $100 back. And there's a 90% chance I'll give you five bucks. 10% chance I'll give you nothing in addition to your 100 still. So now, what are you going to take? You know, which option would you choose? This is a no-brainer. No one in their right mind would take option two. Because if you can get a guaranteed 5% or $5 interest, why why wouldn't you take that? You know, why would you take the option where you can maybe get five bucks, but there's only 90% chance of that, 10% chance you get nothing, right? So a second option has more risk. There's risk that you may not get the full amount of interest uh, on time and or in full. In this case, I'm talking about you won't get it in full. So that's risk. So no one, no one's in their right mind is going to take the second option. But what if now your options are still the same option one, guaranteed to give you 5% interest or five bucks guaranteed, or option two, I'll give you six bucks, but still not guaranteed. There's only a 90% chance I'll give you six bucks, 10% chance you get nothing. Which one are you going to take? Now it's not so, not so obvious, right? Um, do you, do you roll the dice a little bit? Do you, do you take a 10% chance you'll get nothing for the 90% chance you'll get a dollar more than what you otherwise would have got. You may not be sold yet, but now what if I, what if I up the ante? What if I say, I'll give you uh 20% interest or $20, right? With a 90% chance, but 10% chance you get nothing. Would, would you now take that over the guaranteed five bucks? It's, it's, it's a hypothetical question. There's, there's not a right answer to this, but you can see where I'm going. Uh, most, most logical people have a price that they'll accept some amount of risk for, for, for a certain amount of, of compensation, additional compensation. So th this risk-reward trade-off, uh, as it's often called, is, is simply that. Um, if you're going to accept and take on more risk, where risk in the financial sense of the, of the term means the uh, variability or, or the um, uncertainty of how much you'll get or when, if you're going to take on more risk, all else equal, you need to be compensated for it. You need to have the, 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 you know, the promise of a higher expected return. Nothing's guaranteed necessarily, but you need to have a higher expected return than the lower risk safer option. So that, that, that's risk reward. Keep that in mind because that's an important fundamental underpinning of uh, choosing investments. Next concept that's important to know. The money you have, the money you're investing needs to have, let's call it a use by date or, or a target date of when you plan on needing 
to suspend that money or do something with it. Um, without that in mind, you can't possibly start to make a decision of what should I do with this, again, $20,000 I have to invest. Um, you need to have some sense of what's this money actually for? When do I need it? How much risk am I willing to take with it? So do you need this money to, uh, let's say, buy a house in six months? You know, you, you're under contract to buy a house. You're closing in six months. Your, your contractual down payment is $100,000. So you're sitting with 100 grand in your hand for this house down payment. How are you going to invest it? It's a rhetorical question. Don't answer that yet. Uh, another scenario. What if uh, you have $100,000 that's going towards paying the, uh, your, your day-to-day living expenses in the next two to three years? Or you have $100,000, you just got a bonus, for example, um, you don't need it. So you're thinking of investing it for retirement. You're only 30 years old. So you have no reasonable expectations of needing to touch this money for 30 plus years, perhaps. How are you going to invest it then? So there, there should be very different answers to these different scenarios because it's premised on when do you plan on needing the money? Hold that thought. I'll, I'll get into more of, of why this, this timing thing um, matters. It has to do with risk capacity, spoiler alert. So this this money having a use-by date or, or time horizon associated with it ties into, in, in retirement planning at least, the concept of what's, what's often called the bucket strategy or in academia referred to as time segmentation uh, approach. This basically says that of your total assets, you have to sort of slice and dice them and put them in different buckets, whether it's actual buckets like the money's in different accounts or it's just... Uh, uh, mentally, you're accounting for this money in different ways, you should kind of segment and bucket your money. So some of your money is going to be needed to meet your near-term expenses, whether it's you got to you know, go on a vacation next month, or you got a furnace you need to replace, or just day-to-day living expenses you know, the, the, for the next year or two. The money you plan on needing for the next few years uh, should be viewed as like bucket one, let's call it, and then I'll get invested one way. The money that you need for years two to five or two to seven, doesn't matter, you pick whatever years you want. That um, you know that could and should be invested slightly differently because you don't need it immediately, and then the money you need for ten plus years down the road that can be invested even differently because you have you know negligible chance of, of needing to tap it and use it, so it, it could it could withstand more risk because it, ha- it has more time on its side to potentially recover, etc. So uh, time matters even in retirement. You can apply it to the bucketing concept, which many of you may have heard of. Next. Understanding risk tolerance and risk capacity. What do these mean? So risk tolerance is your general view and comfort or lack thereof with taking financial risk, risk and investments. It's basically your your emotional views about taking risk. Will you lose sleep overseeing your account values fluctuate and move around uh, whether you're in retirement or, or younger? You know, that's your risk tolerance. Are you a gambler at heart? Do, do you sort of... Uh, Enjoy. Do you, do you get value? Do you, do you are you excited by uh, the the amount of the unknown? So yeah, like this money may drop fifty percent, but it may go up fifty percent. Like if that decision, if that risk, if that uncertainty uh, does it for you, if you enjoy that in, in some form or fashion, then you're a gambler at heart. You know your risk tolerance is quite high. On the flip side, if you're ultra conservative, if you're the opposite of a gambler at heart. You don't want to see your money move around. You, you want to see it steady, eddy, safe, and stable. You don't want to see your account values change, period. Like you'd be super conservative. You have low risk tolerance. Now, there's different ways to attempt to measure risk tolerance. It, it is a gray, fuzzy, emotional, uh, uh, subjective thing. 
but nonetheless, the industry has uh, continually tries to wrap some sort of quantification and measurement around risk tolerance. Uh, we we, we kind of have to, even though it's flawed, without trying to at least put some uh, defensible, you know, parameters and measurement around risk tolerance. You're, you're sort of flying blind. So there's there's different uh, surveys and questionnaires that, that are out there in the industry. None are necessarily right or wrong or better than the other, but you know, they're all different attempts to try to put some numbers to something that's otherwise not very numeric. So so, so that's risk tolerance. Your your sort of emotional views and comfort with uh, with taking risk. Separate from that is something called risk capacity. This is emotions aside, you know, subjective views aside, sort of quantitatively, objectively speaking, how much risk can your financial profile uh, allow? And, and sort of here's here's what I mean by that. Let's let's talk talk about an example. Let's assume you're retired. You have uh, fifty thousand dollars of total cash needs for the year for food, groceries, property tax, cars, whatever, medical insurance. So fifty thousand dollars of your total cash needs. But let's assume you have $70,000 a year coming in in pension and social security. Those are guaranteed lifetime sources of income that aren't going to stop. So you have every given year, you're going to have $20,000 extra left over. And that's not even touching or talking about your investable assets. This is just pension and social security more than cover all of your expenses. And let's assume you have a million dollars of investable assets from a former employer retirement plan or you know, uh, mutual funds you were buying throughout the years, you have a million dollars. You have a lot of risk capacity with that million dollars, meaning you can take a lot of risk because even if the risk turns out uh, bad and, and that portfolio drops by a lot, you're still okay financially. You still have $70,000 a year, you know, 20 grand more than what you need coming in from guaranteed lifetime income that won't stop. So if your million dollars drops to by you know drops to 250 grand, for example, because you bought some some sort of investment that really crapped out and dropped 75%, you'll still be all right, pure, purely quantitatively speaking. So th this is not risk tolerance. Like you might lose sleep over seeing that. You, you may throw up and get nauseous at, at the at the site of your portfolio having dropped 75%. And I wouldn't blame you if you did. But risk capacity, you're still okay. That's not gonna um, you know, impinge on your ability to still live the life you've been living because you have this $70,000 of pension and social security more than covering your, uh, your expenses. So that's high risk capacity, regardless of your risk tolerance, your risk capacity is high. Now, similar scenario, let's assume same 50 grand of income. Uh, I'm sorry, same 50 grand of expenses every year, but your only source of guaranteed income is social security, 20,000 bucks a year. So that means the other $30,000 you need to live on, you're going to have to be taking out of your portfolio. So you have a million dollars in your investable portfolio from which you need to take out 30 grand a year. Now, very different story. If you're only 60 years old and you're potentially living 30 plus years in retirement, you can't afford for your portfolio to drop from a million dollars to 250 grand because that's going to really put a ding on the longevity of your portfolio and the ability for you to continue to take out 30 grand a year. Right, do the math. If you're taking out 30 grand a year, your portfolio drops to 250. You have, I mean, this all depends how much your portfolio grows going forward, but you know, 30 grand times 10 is $300,000. That, that's already more than 250 grand. So uh, you'd be in a bad spot if that happened. So you have a much lower risk capacity, or again, risk capacity is the sort of objective ability to take risk, not emotional, but objective ability to take risk. You have a much lower risk capacity in the second scenario. Um, 
the, the the timing of when you need your money going back to the previous thing we talked about you know the the uh uh use by date of your money that directly ties into risk capacity so example would be again going back to the house down payment you have a hundred grand sitting in a bank account that you uh are, is earmarked to meet the hundred thousand dollar down payment you're contractually required to make when you close on your house in six months you have a short timeline you know you have six months for when you need that money and you have low risk capacity you, you are not in a position let's assume that's all the money you have you are not in a position where you can afford for that hundred thousand dollars to drop if it drops to eighty thousand dollars in six months you show up at the closing you're, you're now 20 grand short from being able to meet the down payment and you can't buy the house that's not good so for that hundred thousand dollars you have really low risk capacity that hundred thousand should be in something super safe where there's negligible if any risk of it dropping in value now, just because the, and this is why it's important again to have like use by dates for all of your different sort of buckets of money, just because this $100,000 earmarked for your house down payment has really low risk capacity, it doesn't mean your entire financial life has low risk capacity. Separately, you may have a million dollars in you know retirement savings uh, and you're only 40 years old, you still have you know, 20, 20 plus years till you need that money. You have a much larger risk capacity on that money earmarked for retirement, then you do the hundred thousand dollars you're going to need to spend in six months to buy this house. So, so that's that's important stuff to keep in mind with the risk capacity. So now you can start to see why, if someone asks you, "Hey, I just came into twenty grand. What should I do with it?" You, you can't answer that. You have to dig into well, what's it for? When do you need it? What's your risk tolerance? What's your risk capacity for that money? That stuff all starts to dictate how this money should be best invested. Cool, cool. All right. So that's risk tolerance, risk capacity. Um, next term, these sort of tie together somewhat, but asset allocation is just fancy speak for how much of your assets are invested in asset type A versus asset type B versus asset type C. So generally, as far as traditional financial investable assets, that means stocks versus bonds versus cash. Um, you know, maybe you have some alternative investments like crypto can be part of your asset allocation, like uh, cash value, life insurance, perhaps. Um, risk tolerance and risk capacity helps go into deciding what your asset allocation should be. And your asset allocation, you can view it multiple ways. You can view it in, in aggregate, in whole. So again, even though you may have separate sort of buckets and use by dates and, and, and separate needs for your various sources of, of assets, collectively, they may all be let's just say 70-30, where 70% 70 of it is invested in aggressive stuff, 30% is invested in lower risk, much more safe stuff, where as a whole, you're 70-30. Now, what's that money used for? So maybe that 30, the relatively safe and stable stuff, that's what you have earmarked for your, your near-term uh, expenses, like paying for this house down payment, or if you're retired, your, you know, your next year or two of living expenses are part of that lower risk, uh, you know, 30% slice of your asset allocation. So risk tolerance, risk capacity go into uh, uh, determining asset allocation. And what goes into risk tolerance, risk capacity, or at least what goes into risk capacity is stuff like use by dates and time horizons and, and different specific goals and needs for, uh, for your life for your money. Now, some other thoughts on asset allocation. Uh, usually, historically, generally, it, it's only it only covers or only includes your investable 
financial assets. So retirement accounts, cash accounts, uh, regular brokerage accounts, and I'll discuss more about these account types in, in a bit. Generally, it does not include your primary residence, your house. Um, if you own a house as an investment property, sure. If it's a rental or if it's like a fix and flip that you're, you know, you, you buy it, you fix it for six months and sell it. Sure. You can include that because that would be included at, or would be viewed as an investable asset, but primary residence, uh, I'm of the opinion as is, as are most people, they are not to be viewed as investments. They are first and foremost, they provide one of the basic functions of life. Basic needs of life is, is having shelter. Now, not to say homes don't go up in value uh, normally over a long enough time period. Yes, houses go up in price. So, you know, from that perspective, you can sort of view them as an investment. But for purposes of, of, of this uh, series of, of podcast episodes, no, you know, house provides a fun, just like buying groceries. I'm not saying they're not important. And you can, I guess, view buying broccoli as an investment in your health, just like, you know, buying a house as an investment in your well-being or ability to whatever, live life but it's not a traditional investment. So normally they're excluded from your asset allocation. A little trickier with regards to asset allocation is what do you do? How do you treat guaranteed sources of lifetime income, such as pensions or social securities? There's value in them. They're, they're, they're income, right? It's, it's money that shows up every month. You can't ignore that. Tremendously valuable. But generally, they're not included in your asset allocation. They are what they are. We're, we're aware that they're there, but they don't go into your asset allocation. Now, uh, sort of related, your asset allocation and and how much you decide should be invested in risky stuff versus lower risk stuff is or does consider your your guaranteed sources of income. Going back to that risk capacity example I mentioned, if you have fifty thousand dollars a year of necessary expenses and you're already getting seventy thousand dollars a year of pension and social security, that needs to be considered when you figured out how risky can I be? What's my risk capacity? with my investable assets. In that example, you can be ultra aggressive if you wanted to. You can have a lot of your asset allocation being high risk stuff, trying to hope it goes up a lot in value over time, because even if it doesn't, if it drops a lot, you'll still be okay financially. Again, emotionally different story, but financially you'll still be okay because you have a high risk capacity versus those that don't have high risk capacity. Your asset allocation shouldn't be weighted as much into uh, aggressive stuff because you're not in a position to be able to to uh, uh, to who um, uh, I'm struggling for a word here to stomach to um, deal with a really large precipitous drop in your investable assets because you need those to live on. Right. So different story. Uh, but there are actually some folks in some schools of thought that say, you know what, you, you should uh, try to put some sort of present day value on the expected lifetime stream of income you're going to get from pensions or Social Security basically treat that present day value as a safe, secure uh, investment, and therefore then include that into your asset allocation. Now, frankly, I'm not saying you can't do that, but th that's sort of the same thought process as what I just discussed, where I said, even though you don't explicitly include things like pension and social security in your asset allocation, you indirectly consider them in determining what the, you know, in determining how your investable assets should be uh, invested. So, kind of six of one half dozen of the other but um you know point is you, you don't have to and people typically don't outright include the value of pensions and social security in part of their asset allocation uh, other concept to be aware of and, and this is kind of a second order uh, more more um optimization thing is asset location this refers to which asset types 
are best suited to go into which account type. And, and again, I'll talk more about accounts in, in uh, Two Shakes or Lamb's Tale. Um, asset location is really around trying to optimize tax efficiency and, and, and minimize and squeak out some incremental uh, savings from, from paying less tax on your assets. So certain asset types are best suited to be in certain account types. Um, I think I may have did a podcast about that before. I don't know. Uh, I definitely did a YouTube video on it, which I'll, uh, I'll share a link to that in the notes to this episode. Um, anyway, that's asset location, just something else to keep in mind. With that, that's a good segue into talking about the different account types. So, um, and this is important in this in this background episode because going forward, as we start talking about actual investments, you know, you, they need to go somewhere. They need to be held somewhere. They're held in accounts. Traditional financial assets like those we're talking about, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, need to be held somewhere. Now, it may be hard to wrap your head around. Like these are electronic things that I can't touch and feel. What do you mean they need to be held somewhere? Well. Uh, they need to be held electronically, just like physical, tangible things need to be held physically, tangibly. So, for example, if you, I'm trying to, this may not be a great example, but picture having actual gold, like a nugget of gold in your hand or, or cash, bills, you know, actual bills. Uh, they need to go. You know, they go in a whatever, safe deposit box or something. So you can understand that physical investments need to go into some, they, they need to go somewhere physically, uh, you know, a safe deposit box, a, a coffee can, a, um, a box under your bed. I don't know. So financial assets are, are, are loosely similar. Now, stocks and bonds, which again, we'll talk about in more, in more detail in future episodes, stocks used to be things that were uh, physical paper certificates. You know, you having this, what was called share, this physical paper evidenced your ownership in this stock he or she who held that certificate was the one who owned the shares. Uh, bonds were, were similar. Bonds are really nothing more than an obligation to pay a, a bunch of uh, uh, payments to you going forward. Each payment used to be represented by a physical book, a coupon book, where you like literally rip out one of these coupons, mail it in or take it to a bank. That would be evidence of, hey, I own this bond. I'm duly entitled to receive this income payment. You can touch that, see that, right? You can keep it in your bed. You can keep it in the bank safe deposit box. Those are physical uh, manifestations of stocks and bonds. Now, virtually all uh, stocks and bonds don't exist in, in paper form. They exist only electronically in the ether and, and they need to reside somewhere. There are accounts, electronic accounts that hold, that take custody of the electronic stocks and bonds and mutual funds. Uh, just to give a name of what a custodian is, uh, again, I'm not recommending any of these over the other, but these are names you probably heard of. Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab, TD Ameritrade, which is now part of Schwab and will be uh, fully folded into Schwab by the end of 2023. Um, E-Trade, uh, what else? Robinhood, M1. You know, th these are all examples of custodians where you can open an account, an electronic account, where in that account you can hold electronic things, electronic investments like stocks and bonds. So um, so you need, you need to have an account to hold your investments. Again, talking about traditional financial investments here. Um, other things are held different ways, like like in gold, nugget of gold. You can just keep in your bed, you know, keep under your pillow if you want to. So the there, there's a few main types of accounts where they are uh, differentiated by their tax characteristics, specifically uh, how, when, and why you are taxed on the stuff you put in there, or the stuff you take out of there, or the stuff that's uh, generated within there while it's in there, such as dividends and interest. And uh, you'll, you'll see more what I mean as we go through this. So there's three main types, and there's a couple other 
uh, offshoots I'll briefly touch on, but the three main types are, first one is what, what I'll call a normal or taxable account. Uh, like a regular brokerage account is the best way to think about this. So the, the money or the stuff you put in there was paid for with money that's already been taxed. So example would be you have $100,000 of gross wages from your job. You have to pay income tax on that. Let's just assume total income tax was 15,000 bucks. So you're left with $85,000 of post-tax, you know, already taxed money. You use that $85,000 to go buy shares of a stock. That stock needs to sit in an account. It would go into a regular or normal taxable brokerage account because again, the money that you used to buy the stuff going into that account was money that's already been taxed. Okay. Now, you're, uh, because you already pay tax on what goes in there, you're not taxed on that money or those assets. Again, you're only taxed on any income or gains that they generate. So for example, you, you buy a share of stock for $10 with already taxed money, put it into your brokerage account. That stock then goes up to $15. Uh, you sell it. You now made a $5 gain. That's $5 that you, you didn't already have. You're now taxed on that $5 because that's now new income to you. Uh, the, the other 10 you don't have to pay tax on because that was the amount of the money you put in, which again was already taxed. So you're not double taxing that money. So that's a normal or taxable brokerage account. Um, similar concept, you, you may not think about it this way, but a regular bank account, you get a thousand bucks, you know, net money from your paycheck after taxes are withheld and stuff. You got to go put that in a bank account. The bank account you open is a normal or taxable uh, account type because that thousand dollars won't be taxed again. You already pay tax on it any income you earn from it, you know, any interest you earn on it will be taxable. So for example, you put a thousand bucks in a bank account, uh, you get 5% interest, you know, one year later, you now have uh, $1,050. You are taxed on that $50 because that's new income to you that has not yet been taxed to you, whereas the original thousand already was. So that's, you know, banks are, you know, regular bank accounts are uh, what I'll call normal or, or regular taxable accounts. And this one's a little out there, but your house, when you buy a house, you may not think about it. You know, your house doesn't go into an account. You don't have to open up a Vanguard account to buy a house. In fact, you can't. Um, but in terms of like the, the, the tax characteristics of how you, you buy a house is the same as how you buy stocks or bonds in regular taxable brokerage accounts. You buy it with money you already pay tax on. So it's like, you know, earnings that you got from your job that you already pay tax on or money that was gifted to you from a relative or uh, whatever else, you know, social security tax or something or social security income that you would have paid tax on perhaps. So you buy your house with already taxed money. Now, again, there's no account, you know, your evidence of ownership of a house is the, the town in which you buy the house will have records that say, yes, you, you, you are the rightful owner of this, et cetera, et cetera. So there's no account, but conceptually from a tax perspective, it, it's part of, uh, or it's like um, buying investments, financial investments in a regular, normal taxable brokerage account. So that's the first of three account types. Uh, the, the second of the three main account types is tax deferred accounts. This is where the amount of money you put in is not taxable to you in the year you put it in. You get a tax deduction or a tax deferral on the amount of money you put in or contribute into the accounts. Uh, you only then pay tax when you eventually take the money out. So you are a uh, typical example, and I'll talk more about this, is you work for an employer that has a 401k plan. You put in 10000 bucks. That $10,000 reduces the amount of your taxable income that year by $10,000. Hence, that $10,000 is not yet taxed. You are simply deferring 
paying tax on that $10,000 till later. So important thing to know is tax deferred accounts don't get rid of tax. They simply kick the can down the road, which isn't necessarily good or bad. I'm just, you know, it is what it is. For some people, it's good. For some people, it's bad, but um, it just defers it. You don't get rid of it. With that in mind, the value of your tax deferred accounts isn't entirely yours, which isn't, uh, you know, a comforting or um, a fun thing to hear. But if you have a million dollars sitting in a traditional tax deferred account, you'd be like, oh, cool, I got a million bucks. Well, you don't really. Uh, you can't take all million out today and use it. You're gonna have to pay tax on it. Because remember, this is all money that hasn't yet been taxed, right? So your tax deferred accounts are best thought of as a partnership between you and Uncle Sam. Um, some of the money, hopefully most of the money, is is indeed yours that you can use, but some of it is really just a not yet paid tax obligation. So the goal with these is to try to minimize Uncle Uncle Sam's take and therefore maximize how much you get to keep. And that's a whole separate topic. But you know, there, there's that's why tax efficiency and, and uh, good tax planning is, is important because it can really uh, help you walk away with more usable money than you'd otherwise have by minimizing the amount of taxes you have to pay legally, of course, but minimizing the amount of taxes you have to pay. So in that sense, tax deferred accounts aren't really assets, at least not in the eyes of the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS. They are uh, income, specifically income that has not yet been taxed. Eventually, you have to take it out, recognize it and, and pay tax on it. So anyway. So uh, typical examples of tax deferred accounts are something called IRA, which is an acronym for Irish Republican Army. Just kidding. Well, it is actually, but no, in the context of, of this, it refers to individual retirement arrangement, which you may be like, what? I always thought it stood for individual retirement account. No, fun fact. Individual retirement account is just sort of generically what people chose to call it. And it makes more sense, honestly. But the IRS, again, the Internal Revenue Service, they're the ones who, who uh, created or oversee IRAs. They're technically called individual retirement arrangements. Anyway, so that's an account you can open where the money you put in uh, gets you a tax deduction, meaning the money's not yet taxed. Eventually, you have to pay tax when you take the money out. Additionally, any any gains or growth you get within the account isn't taxable along the way. It's similarly taxable when you uh, take money out of the account, whether it's five years, 10 years, 50 years down the road. Similar uh, concepts, similar tax deferred accounts are uh, specific employer retirement plans. If you work for an employer, you may have something called a 401k or a 403b or a 457, or if you're a federal employer, something called the TSP or thrift savings plan. These are all similarly tax deferred accounts and that money you put in uh, is deductible, gets you a deferral on the amount of the money, uh, tax deferral. When you put the money in, it's all eventually taxable when you take it out. Um, fun fact, 401k, 403b, 457, the reason why these have numbers, it's simply the reference in the Internal Revenue Code, the tax code that uh, creates and governs these particular uh, account types. You know, it's Section 401k of the Internal Revenue Code is uh, what, what creates and governs uh, 401k retirement plans. So, so there you have it. Um, important thing to know, and, and these the reason why there's differences, what's a 401k versus 403b versus 457? Uh, it's based on the type of employer you work for. So 401k is for private employers, meaning not public employers. So if you work for the government, which is a public employer, you know, federal government, you don't have a 401k. You have the thrift savings plan, which looks and feels like a 401k, but slightly different. Or if you work for a, not the federal government, but state or local government, like municipality or uh, you know, school district or something, you're going to have a 403b. Similarly, looks and feels like a 401k, but with some differences to it. And again, only accessible to those in uh, you know public employment, whereas private employers have the 401k. Um, 
all these different account types, these are just account types. They're not investments themselves. So for example, if someone says, do you have any investments? You're like, yes. I have a, or, or someone says, what are you invested in? You say, I have a 401k. Well, that doesn't really mean anything because 401k and, and all these account types that matter, they're, they're just buckets. They're buckets that hold the actual investments. So saying you have a 401k or saying you have an IRA says nothing about what you're actually invested in. Because again, these are just account types, specifically uh, account types with you know unique tax characteristics of how the money you put in, the money you take out, the money you earn is or isn't taxed. So keep that in mind. Um, what else? For these tax deferred accounts, there is a penalty on taking money out if you're younger than 59 and a half. Now there's some exceptions to that penalty, but beyond the scope of this episode. And, and the reason for the penalty is that these accounts were specifically set up to incentivize uh, people to save for retirement. The, the government wants people to try to save for retirement. So sort of the dangling carrot they put in front of them is, hey, while you're working, while you in theory have high income, you can save yourself some taxes now by deferring tax on the amount of money you put into these plans, let it invest, let it grow, don't have to pay tax along the way. And eventually when you take it out, gotcha, then you got to pay the tax. Remember, these, these don't get rid of tax. These just kick the can down the road. So, you know, the, the government wants to try to incentivize people to save for their retirements because uh, as a whole, our, our government is uh, uh, horribly not good at, at uh, or I'm sorry, our, our, our nation is horribly not good at funding their own retirements, sadly, but separate issue. So they, they, they penalize you if you take money out. You, in addition to having to pay tax on taking it out early, you have to pay tax anyway, anytime. But uh, if you take it out younger than 59 and a half, there will be an additional 10% early withdrawal penalty. Again, unless you meet one of the few exceptions to that, but I, I won't get into those here. Uh, for additional um, uh, color and, and commentary on the differences between these account types, by the way, check out episode seven of my podcast. I talked all about it in more details. Uh, you can view that as a sort of complement to, to this episode. I'm just trying to touch the surface here about, about these account types. Uh, the third main account type is Roth accounts. Roth accounts are the opposite of tax-deferred accounts in that with a tax-deferred account, again, the money you put in gets you a tax deferral, tax deduction at the time, but at the cost of you have to eventually pay tax when you take money out. Roth accounts, the opposite. There is no upfront tax deferral when you put money in. You put money in on an after-tax basis or already tax basis, similar to regular or normal brokerage accounts. But the difference is when the money comes out, it generally comes out tax-free, including all the growth in the account along the way. You don't pay tax on the growth along the way. Uh, if you meet some qualifying conditions, you eventually get access to all this money tax-free. Super cool. Um, Roth accounts are just different flavors of, of the uh, accounts, you know, the tax-deferred type accounts I just mentioned. So you can have an IRA, a traditional IRA is tax-deferred. You can also have a Roth version of an IRA. So it's still an IRA at, at its core, you know, at its chassis, but the difference is it's taxed differently in that traditional IRA. Again, tax deferral up front, tax on the way out. Roth IRA is the opposite still looks and feels like an IRA, has the same contribution limits, for example. Um, but the opposite taxation, you know, you don't get a tax break up front, but it's all tax-free on the way out if you meet those qualifying conditions, which uh, beyond the scope of this episode, but check out episode eight, where I did get into all the nitty gritty about the, uh, the rules and conditions around taking money out of Roth IRAs and how to avoid taxes and penalties on it. So anyway, so Roth is just sort of like a sub-flavor of those other Retirement account types I talked about, you can have a Roth IRA or you can have a 401k with a Roth uh, 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 function. You can have a Roth 403b, a Roth thrift savings plan for federal employees, for example. Um, also similar to those tax deferred accounts, Roth accounts also have some penalties that apply before age 59 and a half. 
Now you can take out the amount of your contributions anytime without tax or penalty because that's money that's already been taxed. So there's no like unique benefit or savings you got from that. So the government lets you take that out without tax or penalty. But if you take out earnings on that money before age 59 and a half, there will be tax and uh, generally 10% penalty. Now, again, there's there's uh, always exceptions to exceptions to exceptions, but there are some exceptions to the uh, the penalties and stuff. You can check out episode eight uh, if, you're, if you're so inclined to learn more about that. All right, that's uh, that's all the, the meat and potatoes I want to touch on for this part one of to be determined how many parts the series is going to be. It's going to be at least four, maybe five, I suspect, but who knows? We'll see how this thing flows. Um, general housekeeping. So if you didn't hear last week's episode, I did announce that I have a new website called retirementplanningeducation.com. It is where this podcast can be found, uh, which in this podcast can still be found on its Buzzsprout hosting page, but whatever. You can go to retirementplanningeducation.com to find this podcast. Additionally, my YouTube channel and Facebook page, I've since renamed, rebranded, and called them Retirement Planning Education as well. You can find links to those and direct integration to the YouTube channel, at least, on this Retirement Planning Education site. And... Uh, as important, if not more important, there's a whole bunch of free stuff on retirementplanningeducation.com. Some things I made, some checklists, guides, and handouts. There's also this service called FP Pathfinder I, I pay to subscribe to that has dozens of really helpful checklists and flowcharts. Those are all freely available to you. And the best part is there is no sort of, hey, give me your name, phone number, or email, and I'll let you download this. No, none of that. No gates, no screens. Just all this stuff is free to click and download and use as you please. So share it, learn from it. Um, hopefully you, you gain a lot out of it. Uh, definitely check it out. I also have, for those who are interested, a uh, long story, but uh, I bought an indexed universal life insurance policy, uh, largely as an experiment to see how this thing works over the years, because I have some skepticism about it. But um, I created a website to chronicle my my uh, this policy I bought. All the original policy doc documents are up there as are explanations of what is indexed universal life insurance, um, there's going to be videos and articles forthcoming, including interviews with experts around insurance and these products and how they're used and, and shouldn't be used. So this should be a super, super informative and educational experiment that's going to last for decades because it takes that long for these policies to really um, uh, hopefully do as they're designed to do. But anyway, so it is, I called it the IUL experiment, where again, IUL is Index Universal Life Experiment, and I created a website for that. It is www.theiulexperiment.com, which is T-H-E-I-U-L experiment.com. You can check that out. Some cool stuff on that. Again, if you want to see an actual IUL policy, all the all the documents are there for, uh, for the world to freely see. Similarly, no screen where you have to cough up your name or email. Uh, just click and it's downloadable. There you have it. Um, if, you, if you do, and final, my, uh, my bag, my grovel for some likes and attention. If you uh, like this podcast, I would greatly, greatly appreciate it if you take a few moments to leave leave a review, uh, a click, a like, a thumbs up, a star, a five five star, a ten star, whatever, infinite stars. Um, if you if you do like this podcast, definitely please take the time to do it. If you don't like this podcast, please take the time to find someone who does like it and have them do it. Huh. Just kidding, no, not really. Uh, do that, uh, but yeah, and it'd be great, greatly appreciated if you can uh, leave leave some sort of review or comment about this podcast. Thank you very much. And that's it. I'm, uh, I'm parched and running out of breath here. So uh, definitely come back next week. Part two of this intro to investing will be all about stocks. Should be good. I have no idea yet what I'm going to talk. Well, I do have an idea, but I haven't actually put pen to paper to, to spec this out. But I guarantee you it's going to be good. So you, you won't want to miss that. Come back. That'll be episode 58. As always, thank you for listening and I will see you next time. 
The information discussed in this podcast is only general explanations and education. It is not specific tax, legal, or investment advice. Before considering acting on anything you heard here, first consult with your tax, legal, or investment advisor. Thank you. Thank you.